had the kind of spiritually intense uh, and combative week that is uh, likely to produce a sermon that is more suitable to pit viper handling Pentecostals in the piney woods <laughs> than sophisticated and erudite Anglicans here in the heart of Houston. So let's pray that I get this right. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this day, for this church, for this season, for your living and effective word that performs surgery on our hearts. I pray that your spirit would do what your spirit does today, and that I would be a faithful messenger. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> When David uh, texted me early in the week and asked me if I would be willing or able to preach today, uh, of course I immediately, uh, with gratitude, said yes. And then he, he said, today we're covering Acts 23 through 25. Those are three action-packed amazing chapters from the book of Acts. That is a supremely unreasonable assignment. <laughs> you would not ask a friend to do that. There are no fewer than seven above average sermons to be preached from that text. There are four or five more very average sermons I could preach. I was overwhelmed by the scope of the opportunity. So I am going to preach on one verse. But first, let's just set our context. Where are we? So here's where we are. Uh, as you heard last week, uh, Paul ignores a prophetic warning uh, and goes to Jerusalem with an offering for the poor in Jerusalem that he has collected from various churches. There in Jerusalem, the mob expresses gratitude to Paul for his gift by throwing a riot in his honor at the temple. Paul makes his case, and the people show their appreciation by plotting his death. Paul then puts his Roman citizen card on the table. And if you see in the text, that shifts the trajectory of the persecution. Paul is then escorted out of Jerusalem by 470 Roman soldiers to a safer jail in Caesarea. And that's where we are today. <clears throat> Paul is a prisoner, waiting for his due process as a citizen of Rome, for these allegations that arose uh, in Jerusalem. So Paul has a hearing in front of the governor, Felix, <clears throat> for the prosecution there's a hired gun, a lawyer named Tertullus, a skilled and celebrated rhetorician 
He appears to make the case against Paul. His case consists of flattery to Felix, obfuscation of the facts, and an ad hominem attack. Tertullus is following the age-old lawyer creed. If the facts are against you, argue the law. If the law is against you, argue the facts. If the facts and the law are against you, engage in ad hominem attacks. And that's what Tertullus does. As a lawyer, I'm proud of his performance. And then Paul stands to speak. Now, Paul is a a highly educated man. Deep knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. Conversant in the poetry and philosophy of the Greco-Roman world. And 100% fearless because of his confidence in the God of resurrection. Paul demurs. I heard that word my first day of my first class in law school. And I try to use it at least once a day, every day since then. It means he objects. He denies the charges. Uh, He does in his uh, amazing uh, speech, which you just heard, make a confession of his faithfulness to Jesus Christ, uh, his fidelity to the Scriptures, and his confidence in the resurrection. And then uh, there's this one verse in the middle of his defense that we'll focus on today. This is my translation, he says, on account of this, and the this he's referring to is his confession of faith and his hope in the God who raises the dead. Paul says, I am always training to keep a clear conscience before God and people. Now, very often this is translated as, I am doing my best to keep a clear conscience, or I am striving to keep a clear conscience. Both of those translations, I think, miss the force and the meaning of the word that Paul carefully chose. The word here refers to a regimen of disciplined daily training. And this is important uh, to all of us as gym rats, right? It's important to me. As that crazy old man in the gym, and people ask, why is he training so hard? For no good reason. But Paul is training every day to keep a clear conscience before God and people. So this uh, is interesting uh, to me. And uh, the word he uses here uh, for conscience uh, is a Greek word, sunedenai. Uh, uh, the etymology would suggest it means uh, to know with. And the idea of the conscience is that a person can know along with his conscience that he or she is doing the right thing. 
or the wrong thing. Uh, it's clear uh, uh, in the Scriptures, and this is primarily a New Testament uh, uh, word, uh, that the conscience is a gift from God. This is part of what it means to be human. It's that God gives us this conscience. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, think of the conscience as that inner voice that helps us to evaluate options and make decisions when there are ethical or moral issues to be discerned. Uh, this was a key concept in Greek philosophy and, and, and in the Roman uh, philosophers who were simply echoing the great Greek philosophers. Uh, a key concept in the ethical and moral philosophical schools of the time. The Stoics in particular talked a lot about conscience. Uh, for Paul, he poured into this Greek word uh, a lot of the content of what you find in the Hebrew Scriptures, Lev, the word for heart. Heart being the mission control center for the human person. So uh, Paul says what he trains for every day is to keep this clear conscience. But let's clarify uh, what he might mean and what he might not mean. So, is conscience always a reliable guide? Who thinks that the conscience is a reliable guide at all times? The answer is not necessarily. Uh, all of God's good gifts have been vandalized by the rebellion of sin. And that vandalization has impacted the human conscience. So this gift does not always operate within us uh, as it should. So our conscience is not always a reliable guide. But our conscience still is highly relevant. Now, uh, apart from grace, our conscience may be, in Paul's word, branded or even dead. These are interesting words Paul uses. Now, the word brand here, <clears throat> who's running cattle in this church? You call yourself Texans? <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever been part of a... Part of the great Texas ritual of branding uh, cattle. Anyone? Okay, every, every guy here should be raising his hand. If you haven't, then you need to get a friend to let you go uh, participate in this, um, this manly endeavor. So, what is the purpose of the brand? It's a mark of ownership. When Paul says, our conscience apart from grace has been branded, he's talking about that our conscience now is under the ownership of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the bogus world system, the bogus self, and the bogus God of the bogus world system. That these hostile powers, these hostile spiritual powers have impacted the functioning of our conscience in such a way that Paul in Ephesians would even say our conscience uh, for all practical purposes of God is dead. So that's extreme. Of course, those of us who follow Jesus Christ, those of us who have said a yes to God, those of us who have been blessed 
uh, by God pouring out His Holy Spirit and giving us a new heart for the new covenant uh, as participants and agents in God's Shalom Restoration Project, we are not apart from grace. So our conscience, that gift, is renewed. When we get the new heart, we get the new conscience. The new heart that Ezekiel promised is the new heart that God has given you. Paul says the message of Christ, the good news, is now inscribed on this heart. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And this is a gift from God, so this is part of what it means to be in on the new creation. So we do not live apart from grace, but nevertheless, as followers of Jesus, our conscience still may not be functioning properly. So even with grace, our conscience, Paul says, may uh, be weak. This is interesting use of uh, interesting uh, situation. You remember in Corinth, uh, there was this question of whether once I become a follower of Jesus, can I eat the food, the meat in the marketplace? It's not that big a deal now, or it's becoming a bigger deal with. Some of you Marxist vegans uh, coming into our lives here in Texas. But it didn't used to be much of a question, you know. Uh, but uh, back in Corinth, there was a live issue. Can we eat the meat in the marketplace? And uh, some said, of course we can't. Because part of the meat processing business in a pagan city like Corinth is that at some point there would have been a sacrifice. And so the, the, those Christians who had a hyperactive conscience uh, would not eat the meat. And then like a lot of Christians with a hyperactive conscience, not only would they not personally eat the meat, but they would judge those Christians who did eat the meat. So the people with the weak conscience were the judgmental ones pointing the fingers at those Christians who said, yeah, I'll eat the meat and thank God for it. Now, Paul weighs in and says, eat the meat. But if you, by eating the meat, scandalize the brother or sister with the weaker conscience, love says, don't eat the meat. You're free. And as an act of love, you make the concession. But Paul is not advocating that any of us be those people with the weak conscience. Now, what I've observed today, and I, I, don't, I don't say this uh, uh, lightly, uh, you have to understand where I was sojourning for so many years uh, in preaching, that, that I see among us today uh, a group of people uh, coming into the church with a hyperactive conscience as social justice warriors. And I know young people who feel very strongly uh, about my decision uh, to use a plastic straw when I consume a cold beverage because their conscience tells them that by using the straw, they are hastening the demise of the planet. And so they judge me. I'm not going to give up my straw. It's just a weird kind of new moral majority that we have to deal with, uh, with these, the active conscience. It's a weak conscience. Don't have a weak conscience, but always act with love. 
Paul also talks about the unclean conscience. That even the Christian conscience can become unclean. Can uh, and does. How does my conscience become unclean? Or let me put it this way. How would I maintain a clean conscience? Give me an easy path to a clean conscience. Here's the way a clean conscience works. To maintain a clean conscience, I should live my life with impeccable integrity. Right? And integrity is a, a great biblical word. It goes back to the Hebrew word shalom. So uh, uh, to, be, to have integrity then, as the one common definition I often hear is, is that uh, a person with integrity does what he says. You've heard this as, a, as, 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 a, as an operative definition of what it means to have integrity. Uh, you know, you could heard, say, he walks his talk. He practices what he preaches. There's not a disconnect between what he says and what he does. And that is one expression of integrity. But biblical integrity goes deeper than a congruence between words and actions. Although I certainly appreciate that when I see it. That's a bit rare today. Biblical integrity goes deep. It goes deep. Uh, so not only is there congruence between you know, what I say and what I do, what I say is what I speak from the heart. So my heart's aligned with my words, which are expressed and lived out in my actions. But biblical integrity goes deeper than that. Because biblical integrity starts with a heart, the new heart that is fully surrendered, humbly surrendered to God, as James says, humbly accepting the word implanted. So all I have to do to maintain a clear conscience is live with impeccable integrity. That means day to day and moment to moment, I surrender my heart to the Holy Spirit, and then I speak from the heart, and then I do what I say. Piece of cake. But if you do that, you'll have a clean conscience. What if you don't? Because some of us might not. I, for one. It's interesting. It's sad. Um, what we do with the gift that God gives us, this gift of salvation, this gift of relationship, um, uh, and how complicated uh, and fragile we are. Uh, I had a conversation uh, this week. I had to drive to another city to have it. Uh, I dreaded uh, the drive. I dreaded the conversation. Uh, and it was every bit as bad as I imagined it might be. I was talking to a man who had served as uh, 
uh, an elder in a Bible-believing uh, evangelical church, a man with a family, a large family, a man with a, uh, an distinguished professional uh, reputation, uh, a man who is uh, uh, <clears throat> well-known uh, for his uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, a man who over a period of several years uh, has uh, <clears throat> uh, become uh, uh, entangled in disastrous sinful patterns, a man who is drinking himself to death and engaging in all types of infidelities. This didn't happen suddenly. This started with little acts that seared his conscience. The preacher in Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Every day, every day we hear the voice of God saying, Come to me. Saying, Answer me. <laughs> saying, Turn off that ringer. <laughs> The way this works, the way this works is we're all capable of a bad day where we deliberately say no to what God is calling us to do or we ignore His voice. But every day counts. And every day that I, in the deepest part of my being, do not say yes to God, my heart becomes a little bit harder. And you put a few days like that in a row, and it becomes a month. And then a type of a distance begins to develop between you and the Holy Spirit, between you and the truth. And you might carry on the external trappings of faith in Jesus Christ, but your heart, your conscience becomes seared and hardened a little bit every day until you find yourself doing things uh, you never could possibly have imagined. This trajectory plays out throughout our churches on a regular basis. You will not live your life with impeccable integrity on any given day. So what do you do? What do you do? We are so blessed that God already thought of that. God is the ultimate realist. And so we have this great high priest. <clears throat> we'll just go to the Hebrews passage. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the Word of God. If you're the type of person who opens the Bible and you read it, and then you close it thinking uh, in a self-satisfied way, aren't I a good Bible reader and isn't my theology awesome, then you're doing it wrong. 
If you allow the Holy Spirit to confront you in the living and effective Word of God, then you will be exposed. You will be uncomfortably exposed for who you are. But don't despair, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. It says, in time of need. I mean, the word here is eukairos, in the good time, the right time, which is always right now. There is never the wrong time. It is always the eukairos to approach the throne of grace. At the very least, your daily regimen of training for a clear conscience should include a daily examination of how you said yes to God or no to God throughout the day. And on this day, before you doze off, go to the throne of grace. And here's the promise. The promise is that our great high priest who poured out his own blood, that that blood will purify our conscience. The daily regimen of a clear conscience. So you start the day, God, this is your day. Give me the power to live with integrity today. And then Holy Spirit, let me hear your voice that voice, this gift of conscience, when, when your conscience tells me, I shouldn't have said that, or I should not have done that, or I should have done that, and then be quick to go to the throne of grace. You don't need to wait till the end of the day. It's even better if as soon as the Spirit prompts you and you realize, I should not have said that. You go to your wife. It's usually us saying things to our wives we should not have said. If I say that hurtful thing because it just felt like the thing I needed to say at the moment, then as soon as I hear that voice, I need to go to my wife and say, I apologize. But if you don't go, if you hear the voice and you don't go, then that voice will get softer and dimmer and less frequent, and then this gift of a new conscience will no longer have any relevance. So, make it your daily regimen to keep a clear conscience before God and men by approaching the throne of grace boldly because you have a great high priest who is 100% committed to you. Amen.